Ah, listen to that Michael Bond Miller music. Gorgeous stuff. I'm so honored and grateful for that. The podcast is growing. It is growing. We check the stats and see the numbers, and we're encouraged that quality produces results. I hope you liked last week's podcast with old T.C. Christensen. I am a filmmaker, and I've been through that crucible, and I think only a director would get the best stuff out of a fellow director. We can actually track the popularity of each individual podcast on Forever LDS, and it's fascinating to see what topics seem to move and inspire people. Quality, spirituality, entertainment. Those are our objectives. A few more donations from our listeners would be nice. Yeah, it's free, but that doesn't mean it doesn't cost. Two bucks would be kind. Don't make it one buck, because honestly, most of that would go to the uh, credit card processors. But uh, two bucks, five bucks, ten, we'll take it. If you like it, support it. Deeply needed, deeply appreciated. Yeah, shortly we'll open our Professional Storytellers podcast, and I think that's going to blow our listeners away. Aspiring writers and storytellers, that is. The other day I saw another big-time author offering a writing course type thing. A hundred bucks. Our quality will be higher, and less than half that. And it will emphasize our spiritual values. The world has no interest in that stuff, but that's the whole point. Those with stalwart, valiant testimonies need to be able to compete with the same stories that the world has to offer. In fact, our stories need to be better. That's what you're going to get. Of course, it's you and me who needs to make that a reality, but I'm confident there's many Latter-day Saints and Christians who have that talent. They just need a little oomph. You can change the world, address the most powerful issues and subjects and topics that any other writer would approach, and not compromise anything. You will write stories that have the same quality of the best writers on planet Earth. You can exercise the power to hold an audience in the palm of your hand. I know what quality is, and compromise is not an option. So here we are, mere days before Christmas, and certainly folks might expect me to address a Christmassy topic, the birth of the Savior, or some other related subject. Listen, I hope we've already talked about many sacred issues, uplifting words that buoy up testimony and reassure folks that God is King. Emmanuel is Jesus Christ. The true church is here in our midst, and modern prophets walk the earth. I hope in your Christmas meetings and concerts and other Christmas experiences you have this season, you're getting the kind of messages that make you feel grateful and warm and and full of the spirit of the season. Because this message is going to be a little different, but I hope no less important and no less beneficial and transformative for your lives. The Christmas season itself is a mixed bag for me. 
commercialism, commercialism, I mean, Black Friday, Cyber Monday. My goodness, how far away from the Savior and his message can we get? I don't want to be a complete stick in the mud about this, because I certainly recognize that that Christmas is what we make it, and there are those who put their whole hearts into the goal of making Christmas about Christ. But I saw a billboard on I-15 the other day, and I got a—it just— it graded on me just a little bit. It said, peace on earth. And it was an advertisement for a restaurant. And it showed a piece of pumpkin pie with a mound of whipped topping. In other words, they spelled peace, P-I-E-C-E, rather than P-E-A-C-E. Okay, okay, maybe I, I gotta lighten up. But it sort of hit me how far we've gotten away from those words, what Christmas should mean to all of us. Besides, we know that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't born on December 25th. The date is based on the Roman holiday of Saturnalia and the cult of Sol Invictus and was the favorite holiday in the Roman Empire for feasting and carousing and gift-giving and making sacrifices to Jupiter. So, the Emperor Constantine, or perhaps the Emperor Aurelian, in the 3rd or 4th century declared that it should be the natal day of Christ, or his birthday. Not because they had any historical verification, but because it was convenient. Hey, Romans were already taking that day in the previous week off from work, so why shake things up? Why change the date of a perfectly well-established holiday? They decided, let's just make it about Jesus Christ, which is, of course, the new official religion of Rome. And remove that stuff about Saturn and sun worshipers. So the tradition has now survived about 1,700 years. Okay, it's probably no big deal. Better to choose one day to celebrate the birth of Christ than no day at all. An argument can obviously be made that it's best to make every day about Jesus Christ and not just one single day of the year. But that extra attention for one day, for the most part, seems harmless. No harm in in devoting any particular day to the worship of the Savior, except that by now we've forgotten that much of that is not really focused on December 25th. Instead, it's more about Madison Avenue and Wall Street and the bottom line of corporate earnings in the fourth quarter. Nothing wrong with making a living either. I just prefer we didn't do it in such close association with an event so sacred as the advent of our Redeemer. We can do an entire podcast about the actual day of Christ's birth and the day of his death. And we probably will, since, shockingly, so many scholars seem to disagree on both counts. But today, because the purpose of this podcast is to reawaken, reignite, and re-energize the spirit of Latter-day Saints, help members to feel the the true honor that they should feel being Latter-day Saints, I felt I might take this opportunity to do that. Being a Christian, belonging to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a special thing, a unique thing, a, a peculiar thing. That word has sort of transformed into something negative. But when I joined the church in the early 80s, we felt kind of a special kind of pride in being thought of as a peculiar people. In Deuteronomy 14, too, the Lord tells us, 
For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, above all nations that are upon the earth. In 1 Peter 2.9 we're told, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the Lord and his prophets dubbed us a peculiar people. Yet I don't think we embrace that label the way we used to. I, th- I think, I personally, I think it's a cool label. It means we stand out, we're different, we're unique. We're going to change the world. So why do I feel like the last generation has rejected that idea and instead fought so hard to help the church to just fit in? We don't want to rock the boat. We just seem like we want other denominations to embrace us as fellow Christians and think of us as just like them. Now, I realize there is some wisdom in this. We have every right to proclaim our faith in Christ and our acceptance of him as our Savior and Redeemer. But maybe this idea can be taken too far, or at least it can be a waste of a lot of time. Maybe in our efforts to fit in and seek the acceptance of the world, we've forgotten that it's okay to also accept the notion of being peculiar. Here's the fact. We're it, people. We're the only true and living, that's a critical word, living church upon the face of the whole earth, with which I, the Lord, am well pleased. Now, that's the quote from DNC section 1, verse 30. And then the the Lord adds the caveat, speaking unto the church collectively and not individually, meaning he is pleased with the church in general, but he may not be pleased with each of its individual members, including you or me. So we continually repent and fight to stay in his good graces. But true and living church, ooh, that's bold. Some would even say that's arrogant, that's narrow and intolerant. The only true and living church? What's that make the rest of us? Chopped liver? No, but it means you don't have the full gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know any politically correct way to say that. Uh, Okay, I do know politically correct ways of putting it. We don't want to take away what you have, but merely to add to it. Let us celebrate our commonalities as fellow Christians and try not to criticize or denigrate each other in our beliefs. Fair enough. We don't have to actually get in people's faces and tell them they're just plain wrong, right? Or do we? Actually, we do. What do you think missionary work is all about? I mean, what do you think it is? We get in people's faces and tell them, We have the keys to their salvation, and we can offer them the fullness of his kingdom. We just do it utilizing a a few of our better-honed communication skills. We use finesse and gentle persuasion. We try to do so without causing offense, but let's face it. In the end, we are telling people, everyone, that they need more than what they already have. We are outright proclaiming to people that they do need to understand there are modern prophets, entire volumes of additional scriptures, and that we alone possess the true and living authority of the priesthood. 
and we strive to convince them of these things while simultaneously relying on the Spirit. Because again, rely on the arm of flesh. Skills of rhetoric and debate in a situation like this, you'll lose every time. So pray for guidance. And then open our mouths and express to everyone we can reach that they and their families are in desperate need of our priesthood to receive the ordinances of salvation, the ordinances that will bring them back to the presence of God and help them to receive the opportunity of exaltation in his celestial kingdom. Yeah, that's peculiar, no doubt about it. Frankly, for most people, it's downright offensive. But that's what the Lord has asked us to do. Open our mouths. Pray for the words the Spirit might have us speak. But then, open our mouths. I have a feeling that the same battle to be politically correct that has afflicted much of America and the world has also afflicted members of the Church of Jesus Christ. We walk on eggshells. Some of us are actually ashamed of our church membership, and we avoid revealing our secret superhero identity to our fellow workers and associates in other parts of our lives. We're not Clark Kent's people. We don't hide behind secret identities. We're commanded to let our light so shine that the world will see our good works and glorify God because of it. But lately, a lot of us are feeling the siege, so to speak. We feel the heat of being labeled by the world as essentially awful, narrow-minded, bigoted, misogynistic, and intolerant. I fear a few of us are starting to think it might be true. We backpedal and say to our critics, no, 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 we, we want to be like you. Please like us. Please, pretty please. Oh, how we yearn for your love and acceptance as fellow religionists, all of us striving to worship God and serve our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, certainly kind-hearted individuals, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, are capable of diffusing some pretty intense situations, and I think those instances need to be diffused on occasion. No problem, but fellow saints, let me remind you, we are the true Church of Jesus Christ. Don't ever expect this website to water that down and declare something any less than what I just declared. And when you happen to be the only true and living church on the face of the earth, there's a few fundamental facts you're going to face. Number one, the world, in general, is never going to accept that. Oh, certainly the day will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, but right now, uh, the world does not accept that, is not going to accept that. Not wholly, not by and large. Maybe, eventually, not by many at all. Let me tell you, back in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s, our church was riding high as far as public perception. BYU was the number one college football team in America. Charlene Wells, the daughter of a general authority, was Miss America. Mike Wallace was doing positive interviews of President Gordon B. Hinckley on 60 Minutes. Goodwill was running high. Most Americans openly admired our stance on strong families, hard work, clean living, and healthy lifestyles. So where is all that goodwill now? 
I think a lot of it still exists, but something is definitely changing, and it seems to be changing rapidly. If I'm sounding too much like a proponent of doom and gloom, I apologize. Please believe me when I say desperately, I hope I'm wrong. But if you suspect I may be right, and this info makes you feel more depressed and feeling the siege, let me ask you, why are you surprised? Did you really expect it to always be so positive? Here's fundamental fact number two, and this one is impossible to ignore. There is an adversary. Satan exists. He is real. He is out there. And he is pouring all the resources he possibly can into destroying this kingdom, not only collectively, but destroying you and me individually. Satan is never going to allow other faiths to just embrace us as fellow worshipers of the same God. Not for long. He may allow it for a while in the minds of fair-minded men and women, but there's too many men and women out there who are not fair-minded. Satan won't let them forget for one minute that everything we stand for threatens everything they stand for. Did we really think we were always going to retain and preserve that general goodwill of being admired and praised by the general public? I don't really think so. We treasure and capitalize upon those successful platonic moments when, indeed, we manage to work our way into the hearts of people of other faiths and belief systems, people who we may never expect to convert, but with whom we simply want to spread our humanitarian efforts across the globe with food, comfort, medicine, supplies, love, and compassion. Fortunately, when it comes to providing relief after a hurricane or an earthquake, no one seems to care who brings the blankets. But to expect that the world will always go out of its way to seek our help, or even that it will always trust or respect us or admire us in any way, is probably naive. We are a peculiar people. Our beliefs are peculiar. Our beliefs are powerful. Our message is powerful and unique. It saves souls. It's okay to be peculiar. Was the true and living church under the true and living priesthood ever anything but peculiar to those who work and live and go about their daily lives among us? Maybe not the residents of the city of Enoch. They were all pretty much of one mind and faith. But that's the one place I can think of. Maybe Cache Valley in Utah. That's the place we moved in 2013, hoping it might be just a tad closer to the city of Enoch. And it is a little better, but only incrementally so. And I suspect in a couple of years it won't be any different from other places we've lived and experienced. So get over it. Times are changing. We can all feel it. We sense something. Maybe it's just in my imagination. I have a very active one of those. I could be completely wrong, but I suspect the goodwill that the church has enjoyed in the communities of America and other parts of the world has only lasted for a short season. And it might, I say might, never return. It may even further disintegrate. 
You only have to read the comments that non-Mormons and former Mormons and anti-Mormons make in any association with any news story about the church and its policies to see that the venom and hatred and ill will is overwhelming. And unfortunately, it seems to be increasing. Will there be a reprieve? It is possible that goodwill, the same goodwill we enjoyed for a season, will return. I very much pray that it will. I pray that every semi-cynical statement I've made today is dead wrong. But if that goodwill doesn't return, that's not going to change my personal mission. It's certainly not going to change the things I say on Forever LDS. You know, I'm convinced that 20 years ago, Latter-day Saints felt freer, freer, to ponder and express the most fascinating ideas, scientific discoveries, bits of information, miraculous coincidences that buoyed up our faith. These tidbits were never the foundation of our faith. The foundation was and clearly is defined by the same concept found in Moroni 10, 3 through 5. These scriptures tell us that the Holy Ghost will testify to us of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, literally. When you feel it, you know it. In God's own time, by the way, but you will know it. The fascinating topics I'm talking about are just the fun pieces of information, often originating in the world, and then they made you nod your head and go, aha, that's cool. That supports our doctrine. That supports what I heard in General Conference. That goes right along with things I've believed because of my gospel studies all along. I don't think we do that as much anymore over the last decade. I mean, this was really fun stuff for us. At least I thought so. Now, feeling we're besieged from both within and without the church for many of these exact same topics, I have to feel like probably we're a little less willing to discuss them. Our trivial, fascinating, and sometimes staggeringly profound discoveries that buoyed up our faith are all under siege by a new breed of scholars and downright vicious purveyors of tolerance and political correctness. They've even tried to undermine the experience of spiritual confirmation. I first heard this argument back in the 90s, I think, and it blew me away. Someone arguing that the emotional desire someone needs to verify an issue of faith can have physical ramifications, such as a burning in the bosom, a tingling sensation, all very natural. Nothing that can be used to claim you received a testimony. Wow, my jaw dropped when I read that. Now, my honest feeling is that there are no words to describe being touched by the Holy Ghost. Burning in the bosom, warm sensation, yeah, those are pretty good analogies, but totally inadequate. When pure truth enters your mind, there are no adequate words to describe that sensation, none. So hearing this psychobabble try to undermine the usual ways that such experiences are described, I thought, wow, that's pretty clever. If I was the adversary, that's how I would try to close people off to the spirit. Convince them it's all perfectly normal psychophysical reaction to the natural stimuli of earth life. Ugh. They tried to reduce such a sacred experience to a bunch of perfectly normal physical sensations and synapses in the brain, intermingled with an emotional tendency or factor. Well, honey, that's not what I experienced. 
when spirit touches spirit, most aren't even inclined to try and give it a tangible description. Even to the person whom the spirit touches, no description ever seems quite adequate. Pure truth defies a perfectly physical emotional description. You just know. Intelligence penetrates your soul, and you just know. A still small voice speaks comfort, peace, truth. And no, it's not about schizophrenia, although I'm sure the adversary has tried that explanation as well. Intelligence penetrates, doubt flees. A new paradigm of truth is suddenly embedded in your world. Sometimes it's not even suddenly. The Lord knows your personality. He knows how to touch you. And however that testimony is communicated, it consistently rises above any explanation easily dismissed by psychobabble. That's the world we live in. I quoted this scripture in another podcast, ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Don't be that guy or gal. Open up your heart. Become teachable and invite the Spirit to intervene. Have a desire to know. I mean a big, a strong, an overwhelming desire. And ignore all the consequences that might come in your life as a result of receiving that knowledge. This only creates anxiety. Clear your head. Leave yourself open to anything the Lord might want to tell you. And then learn how to hear. To me, this is sacred stuff, and it's very real. So I was offended to see the adversary try to make it seem so much more complicated than it needs to be. Still, I got to hand it to him. Very clever, very evil. Tell me if your experience is the same as mine. It used to be that those within the church who held somewhat off-color or teasingly liberal notions or just some bizarre idea used to be the ones who sort of kept to themselves and didn't quite feel confident enough to voice those views that didn't gel with church policy and doctrine over the pulpit or during class. Now, those same members are the ones becoming most vocal, both in our meetings and in public forums, while those of us whose views remain faithful, conservative, and supportive of traditional doctrinal interpretations feel more inclined to stay silent, slip into sleep mode like our computers for fear of ridicule or outright antagonism, not only from those not of our faith, but from those within our faith. I see it. I've felt it. I've heard some of the strangest ideas uttered in church classrooms and discussed by members sitting at a nearby table at a church function and almost felt inclined to step outside and make sure I was still inside a Mormon building. Many of us are feeling less inclined to take a stand, less inclined to make waves. Some are letting themselves be steamrolled, and quite often we don't even recognize it's happening. I don't like political correctness. I don't like having to be worried all the time about offending someone because of a turn of phrase or some opinion that might be taken out of context and twisted in a way that I never intended. Certainly, I recognize the need to be compassionate and sensitive. Feelings are real. Words can hurt. 
But there's a line. There's a limit to how sensitive I'm willing to be. In certain categories, we're at that line. So far, I think I've been pretty lucky, but I fear this podcast is going to expose me and there will be repercussions. That's okay. Bring it on. Had to happen sooner or later. I mean, Latter-day Saints aren't the only Americans sick of our rising culture of political correctness. There's a reason an outsider politician like Donald Trump has garnered so much attention. For history's sake, because I, I know that many people who listen to this podcast may do so years from now. Last week in America, we just listened to the CNN debate with eight or ten Republican candidates on stage, and many of them, including the media, had a grand time excoriating Donald Trump for many of the things which he says, which are undeniably politically incorrect on issues like race, religion. He seems to have reminded us what the term politically incorrect actually means. Now, I don't know if I could support this man for president, but I understand the response. I get why people find it so interesting, even refreshing. All right, if we, if we want to digress into politics for a moment, I'll tell you who I want to vote for. For me, the answer is very simple. You know, during the last election cycle, when Mitt Romney was the Republican candidate for president, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't my ideal candidate when it came to all my personal political views. But there was one thing that made me desperate to see this man win the presidency. And it really had nothing to do with the fact that we were part of the same faith. It was because here was a man who I trusted to make the most desperate decisions in a time of crisis on his knees. I don't believe any man or woman running for president is intelligent enough to get the most critical decisions right, not when it really matters. If they think they can rely on the arm of flesh, on their so-called wisdom, I don't care how many smart cabinet guys and advisors they surround themselves with. Without God's involvement and wisdom, very damaging, possibly irreversible blunders are inevitable. So which candidates now running have that kind of built-in reliance of faith as part of their souls? I'm not going to answer that. That's where you have to get on your knees. And that's where I get on my knees. Got a feeling we can't afford to get this one wrong. But you know, I'm not the only voter who gets to decide. It's the soul of the nation that ultimately decides. So, America has no right to go off whining if they happen to elect someone who is convinced that he or she is the smartest guy or gal in the room. I gotta wonder if we've already done that. And look what that's gotten us. This time, we need someone who's not afraid to ask for insight from above, not afraid to admit they need help, not afraid to say Merry Christmas. Maybe someone of that description won't even get the nomination. Maybe they won't even choose a vice president with such values. Well, God help us, I'll still do the best I can. I'm not going to sit home and pout. I'll do my part. I'll do my part. So, for those who felt forever LDS might mince words, you stand corrected. I may also have to stand corrected if it turns out that something I said was wrong. But... If I got your mind spinning, your thoughts whirling, and your heart just a little more attuned to rely on the Spirit in all the decisions of your life, then I've probably done a good service. 
Now, please don't go telling folks Chris Heimerdinger thinks it's okay to try to convert people by just telling them they're flat out wrong. Take some time to read the classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, or maybe just the book titled How to Love People and Influence Friends for Good, because that's the objective. The worst thing is to do nothing. I got this vision in my head of all the missionary opportunities that I missed in my life because I refused to invite the Spirit into my heart and open my mouth. I presume our scorecards will all be fairly lacking in that department, but that's why we take the sacrament every week. We recognize a problem, and we start to fix it. Remember, the label of being a peculiar people God gave us that label, and he knows what he's talking about. Don't worry too much about how the world looks down on our beliefs with greater and greater animosity. It's coming, folks. Prepare yourself, spiritually, emotionally, and with a nice year's supply of food on hand. Or, if it is ever required to show love, patience, tolerance, and kindness, don't be surprised when others utterly refuse to give you back the same respect. Throughout history, the Lord's true and living church is generally despised. So I presume that status will overtake us yet again. Just remember, if things get really bad and you start to feel genuine fear, we've been told to not fear and that God would protect us. That's why we have a prophet whose instructions may one day be to pack up and move and stand in holier places. I don't know where that place might be. Uh, well, I, I know where it will eventually be, but I don't know moment to moment. I just pray I don't miss the broadcast because I've let my attention slip. A failure to heed the prophet's warning when it finally comes in on this matter is, I think, a great moment in the dividing of the wheat and the tares before Christ's second coming. I pray I'm on the right side, and I pray you are too. God bless your families this Christmas season. Sing in your homes, you know. Can I give that small piece of advice? Nothing invites the spirit like a spiritual Christmas hymn sung by innocent, off-key voices in a struggling family. And I think that struggling part might describe all of us. Stay close to the Lord. Don't move away from God for any reason. Keep him closely by your side. Watch and pray always. Now, here's a little bit of Michael's music again to lead us out. Thank you so much for being with us every week. This is Chris Heimerdinger. A merry, merry Christmas to all of you. <laughs>